Our Father God, we are thankful that we can gather in the name of your Son, who is our Lord and Master, and that we can worship together through, song, through prayer, through study of the Word, through fellowship. And Lord, we're thankful that as we, we do so, we know you are here because you have promised that where your people are gathered, even as few as two or three, that you are there in our midst. And so we trust you today to, to touch each of our lives. You know us through and through. You understand each one of us. Your love for us is not diminished because of our weaknesses. And so, Father, we trust you to touch our lives today in ways that we may not even understand, but you know we need. And so, Lord, we just pray you will continue to uh, speak to us through your word. Bless our study this hour. Bless the service uh, as it is transpiring at this hour. And, and we'll thank you for all that you do. In Christ's name, amen. Last Sunday, we left Joshua coming down the mountain with his mentor, Moses. Moses had been in the cloud on the top of the mountain and had received the Ten Commandments as they were carved into the stone tablets. And Joshua had remained on the mountain below the cloud but above the camp for that whole 40 days and 40 nights. And now they're coming down the mountain. I, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Mount Sinai, but if you can visualize, this is a bald mountain. There, there are no trees growing on Mount Sinai. It's a bald piece of red granite that just protrudes up into the air here. And they're coming down off this mountain. And Israel was, was arrayed out at the base of the mountain to the north on this great plain. And as they round the last bend in the mountain and visually see what Moses already was informed by God was taking place, they had heard the sound in the camp, but they see this, this religious orgy that's going on here, worshiping this golden calf. And, and into Moses comes this great righteous indignation as he visualized, saw his, his people here in the camp worshiping this golden calf and carrying on in ways that were unseemly in, in worshiping this golden calf. And you, you remember that Moses took the stone tablets and just flung them down the mountain towards them. You could just see these stone tablets sailing down and hitting the base of the mountain, shattering into a hundred pieces. Here's Joshua standing right beside Moses the whole time. <coughs> and I'm not too sure, you know, how Moses reacted to all of that because seeing his, his, his spiritual father, what we would say, flip his top here and, and do this. I mean, here were these precious stones that certainly Moses told Joshua about and showed to him as he was coming down the mountain and flinging him down the mountain and watching them shatter. But you know what, what Joshua was, was receiving was one of the most powerful biblical examples of true righteous indignation. You know, sometimes we say of ourselves, well, I'm righteously indignant when we're very unrighteously indignant. But in this case, it was God's power flowing through this man, Moses, as he saw his guilty people uh, violating the word. Now, why was he so angry so quickly? Well, let me read a couple of passages that, that you know well. But let me just go back to them for a moment. In the 20th chapter of Exodus, you remember that's the passage that gives us the Ten Commandments uh, spelled out. And let me read the second and third, uh, the third and fourth verses of that again. In Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, we read this You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And you shall not worship them, the scripture says, because I am a jealous God. 
Okay, they had already received these. You see, Moses had been on the mountain. He had verbally received the Ten Commandments. He had given them to the people. Now he had gone back up again to receive them carved in stone. In between the first account and his delivery of them, let's turn to the 24th chapter of, of Exodus. And we read these words in verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. Now what you've read in the 20th, 21st, 22nd, 23rd chapters are these ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. That is why Moses was so ticked. He had just given them the whole law. They had heard it. They had responded to it. They said, we will do it. We will do it. And all he has to do is go up the mountain and be out of their sight for 40 days, 40 nights. And are they doing it? No, they're not doing it. In fact, they're violating the very commandments that he had read, that you shall have, make no images, graven images. And whatever they called the golden calf, you know, they tried to alibi their way out of this, you know, but well, the golden calf is just representative of Yahweh. Well, the scripture says you'll make no graven images in the form of anything on the earth. So obviously, they, whatever they called it, they were violating the, the command of God. And, and, and Moses was, was just full. I mean, he was godly, god, godly irate. There's probably no such way to put that, but that's what I did. The example of the zeal of God here before Joshua, I think, was, was embossed on his mind almost as this, the actual words of the Ten Commandments were embossed on the stone. And Joshua would never remember, I'm sorry, would never forget the lesson he learned that day on the mountain. In between this golden calf episode and the account in chapter 34 where Moses went, back up the mountain again, only to receive the, second, the Ten Commandments a second time because the first ones had been shattered. So God said, cut, it, cut out two more tablets, bring them up, I'll write them again. And so in between that, we have a very wonderful account for us in, written in the 33rd chapter of Exodus. In this chapter, we have an account of the relationship between Moses and God and between Moses and Joshua, Moses set up a tent outside of the camp. This tent was set up to be the prayer tent. The tabernacle has not been built yet. There is no tabernacle yet. So Moses set up this tent outside of the camp where the people and he would go when they wanted to commune with God. So let's read uh, in Exodus 33, beginning at verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his own personal tent, his own house, and gaze after Moses until he had entered this prayer tent. And it came about, Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, 
all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his own tent. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent, the prayer tent. Moses, when he wanted to hear from God, would go out to the prayer tent and enter into that tent, and the pillar of cloud, it said, would always come upon that tent where Moses was communing with God. And Joshua would go with him. Joshua did not go into the tent. Joshua stood outside the tent. And you can imagine, could you put yourself in, in Joshua's sta uh, sandals standing there? You're outside the tent and you're looking up at, ah, this pillar of cloud that's sitting there on the tent. And you know that inside that tent, your spiritual father is communing with God face to face, as it were, hearing literally God speak to him. Joshua then, when Moses would leave and go back to his tent, Joshua didn't just trot right after Moses, he stayed. He stayed probably maybe to guard the tent, not that it needed particularly to be guarded, but I think more than anything else to simply reflect and dwell in the afterglow of what had just happened there and to think about what it was going to be like someday because he probably was already aware of the fact that he was being groomed for the job of leadership and therefore what was this going to mean? And he would remain behind there and Moses would allow him to remain behind and uh, just to absorb what had, what had transpired in the moments before. There's a very, very important truth in this, I think. And that is that Joshua was already exhibiting a single-minded dedication to his spiritual mentor, Moses, but beyond that, to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. Joshua was becoming absolutely single-minded. The curse of the church today is double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. That double-mindedness is probably most powerfully exhibited when you see <clears throat> the leader of this country coming out of church carrying his Bible, shown on television, and then to know the tragedy of that man's life. Double-minded, if there ever was a double-minded person. And that is not, of course... <laughs> Uh, he is not an isolated example. It's, it's shot through the church all over. And yet, the scripture is very, very plain about this. But let me just read a couple of uh, passages from the book of James, which is very pointed on this double-minded issue. In James chapter 1, we read, beginning at verse 5, But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. That is a prayer that you know will always be answered if you're single-minded in your devotion to God and you want to know from God what to do. You need his wisdom and you want to act on his wisdom. He will give that wisdom. But it says in verse 6, let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything of the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. A double-minded person is unstable. The foundation is not Jesus Christ. They are not built on the solid rock. 
Uh, a double-minded person is a person who thinks he has one foot in heaven and the other foot on the earth, and he's going to enjoy the, be the best of both. You can't do that. Biblically, that is impossible. You must either follow God or follow the world. The scripture says you cannot worship God and mammon. And mammon doesn't just mean money. It means the whole worldly system. If we follow after the ways of the world but claim to be a Christian, we are fooling ourselves. In the later, in the book of James, <clears throat> beginning of verse 7 of chapter 4, we read, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's James 4.8. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. A double-minded person is not only unstable, but is impure. His hands are unclean. Such a person will not stand before God, ultimately. Such a person is one who is a believer in his mind, but not in his heart. Never having been and, and we live in a world shot full of people like this, who, who like to parade their Christianity, but uh, whose lives do not explain the truth. Yesterday, uh, several of us from the college went up to a kind of a walk to the top of the Castle Craig. And uh, with me rode uh, one of the ladies from the college and her friend. And her friend was telling a story about how she had recently been in an automobile accident. And she had been over at Dane Enter and Creek, and she heard a siren, so she slowed down because she saw a fire truck coming. Well, the guy behind her just plowed, I mean, she had the green light, so the guy behind her big block pickup truck just plowed right into her, pushed her clear across the intersection. And she says, what are you doing? He says, well, I thought you were going to beat them. Beat the fire truck. Well, they did barely beat the fire truck. But, um, but what really bothered her was it was a young man in an old pickup truck, no insurance, but he picked up his Bible and came over to her and said he was just coming to church. And uh, she said a, a person who had been staying in the corner came over and said to her, I saw the whole thing. If you need any support in this, I saw everything that happened. She, a little later, she saw this guy with his Bible over talking with his witness. And the witness says, no, I'm not going to say that. I know what I saw. And so she knew this guy was trying to cause, cause this witness to change her opinion of what had happened. You know, to me, you were talking about being double-minded. Somebody who, who is not single-minded in his commitment to the Lord at all, he is, he is trying to uh, feather his own bed, as it were, and ignoring the very tenets of the Bible. And not so Joshua. Joshua is a man who is being groomed to be Moses' successor, and his goal is God, and his goal is to be an honor to his mentor. The depth of Joshua's dedication to Moses as God's true spokesman was illustrated in the story of the quail. Remember the quail? Shortly after they met, left Mount Sinai and they were headed up for Canaan, uh, the people started to complain, oh, well, we've got this lousy manna, can't we have some meat? And uh, Moses became so despondent over the fact that he was facing crisis after crisis and he was all alone. God said to him, see what I can do. Gather 70 elders from the tribe and come out to the prayer tent and circle that prayer tent with the 70 elders and see what I will do. And God, it says in the passage in uh, Numbers, took of his spirit and put his Holy Spirit on all 70 of those men so that they all prophesied, that is, they all spoke forth the word of God. 
Let me read from Numbers chapter 11 what happened uh, more or less simultaneously with that. Numbers 11, uh, verse 26. Two men who were supposed to be of the 70 and gone out to the prayer tent remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, for they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. And do you see the graciousness of God here? For whatever reason, these two didn't even go out to the prayer tent to participate as amongst the 70. So there were really only 68 out there, and two of them were still back in the camp. But God's Spirit fell upon them too, and they prophesied, spoke forth the word of God, as the other sixty-eight did. So a young man ran and told Moses, said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. He had never seen anything like this before. I mean, this young man was really, you know, freaked out. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous? I say, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them, them all. Joshua was a man of passion. Joshua was a man of commitment. And he was jealous on behalf of his spiritual father, Moses. Moses was the prophet in the camp. And yes, although at the gathering out there amongst the 70 were Joshua, was Joshua. And, you know, he saw this happen, but Moses was present there. Moses was in their midst. And so he could adjust to the fact that 68 others were prophesying. But Moses was there, you see, as chief prophet, if you will. But here were two men who weren't even here. They were out of sight. They were out of sound. Uh, they, they were not a part of this official meeting here at the prayer tent. And so he was convinced that Moses alone was the one through whom God worked to empower prophecy. And therefore, Eldad and Medad were trespassing upon Moses' prerogative. Joshua was upset. And Joshua was jealous on behalf of Moses. I think Moses was flattered to have this young man say this. But he chose to use this as an opportunity to teach Joshua some very important lessons. These were lessons, of course, that Moses had learned over many, many years. First thing he wanted Joshua to know is that God is not limited to one man or to one way in which to accomplish his purpose. God does not alone accomplish his purpose through the pastor. God alone does not accomplish his purpose through the missionary. God accomplishes purpose through many people in many ways, and sometimes ways that we don't even see. And Joshua needed to know that God was not limited to Moses, that Joshua could work besides him, beside him, and in spite of Moses. Secondly, he needed to understand the situation from God's perspective, to see Israel from God's vantage point, to realize that Joshua, of course, is inside the whole thing, and he's looking at the picture from his, his, his myopia, and he's not above as God is looking down on all of Israel from beginning to end and seeing the whole flow of history and what God would do. And, and that's, of course, one of the reasons why we have this book. We have this book so that we can understand the flow of God's work throughout time from Genesis to Revelation. And you and I are a whole lot closer to Revelation than we are to Genesis in that time frame. And to, to see the big picture, that's why it's so important for us to be world Christians. I, I've mentioned this before, but... We have a good friend who says, 
Why should we be concerned about foreign missions when we have people right here in our neighborhood who need to know the Lord? Let somebody else worry about that. I mean, that is myopia, spiritual myopia, because we are part of the church universal. We are a member of a church that spans this globe. And that's one of the reasons why we pray for those who are going out and why we pray for the churches that are being established around the world because we're all part of the same body. And when you read Corinthians, Paul ties it all together and says, you know, some are eyes and some are feet and some are ears. And we're all part of this together. And this whole concept of denominationalism is, is, a, is a stench when it comes to people because one denomination thinks they're superior to other denomination causes the church to be divided. That's, that's violent. That's, but if we want to call ourselves Methodists or Baptists or Congregationalists or whatever, that's fine. But we are not to look down on one another because we may view things slightly different or be a little bit different in our practice. We need to view everyone who professes Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of his or her life. And that's a genuine thing in their lives as a brother and sister in Christ, whatever there is their, quote, denominational label. Thirdly, Joshua needed to develop greater compassion for his people. Moses loved his people. Moses stood in the gap for his people. Moses at one point said, Lord, take me and spare the people. I mean, there were times when Moses was really upset at the people. But at the same time, deep down inside, he had this passion for the people. He wanted Joshua to have that too because Joshua was going to lead the people. And you better love these people if you're going to lead them. Won't be under the pastor of a church who tries to pastor a church and doesn't love his people. God is not going to be able to work. He'll work in spite of that relationship. And, of course, vice versa. I think Joshua's feelings here, however, were very similar to those of the disciple John. Let me, let me turn to a passage in Mark. Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. See, John had a very myoptic view of things, too. To him, uh, you had to be one of the inner crew, that little group, the little ball of people was following Jesus around. And Jesus wanted him to see that there are other sheep. There are other sheep. God is working in other lives. God is working beyond this little group. You are not the sole channel by which God works here. He was saying to his disciples. And as you look at the history of the development of the early church, you discover that. Because if the church was to have to have been built by Matthew and, and uh, you know, Peter and James and John and, and, and these individuals alone, by those 11 after Judas had blown himself away, the church would have been very slow in growing. But God raised up Pauls and Luke's and Barnabas's and Timothy's and Titus's and hundreds and hundreds of others who carried the word of God all out around and the church grew rapidly because God was not limited to the Torah. God was not limited to Moses and Joshua. And Joshua needed to understand that. Paul later makes a wonderful example to us uh, of uh, how our attitude needs to be. Uh, Paul went so far as to say he rejoiced that Christ was preached 
even if the preachers were doing so out of jealousy against Paul and even out of a desire to harm him. Let me read the passage in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. This is not excusing the improper preaching of the gospel or the wrong attitude or heart leaning at the time. Look, it displays the attitude of Paul that in humility he stood for Christ and he rejoiced if Christ was preached under any circumstances because he knew God would use that as he would so true. Moses and Paul demonstrated powerful humility and the importance of placing the big picture over one's own private feelings. You and I have feelings. And, and we have a feeling about this, and we have a feeling about that. Our feelings may be dead wrong, but we still think they are right. And sometimes that limits our understanding of what God is trying to do. We've got to see the bigger picture of the work that God is doing. And realize that God can use some of the weakest people you can ever believe to advance. Joshua, of course, was young, pliable. And he was being slowly shaped through this 40-year internship under Moses. He was being shaped into the man that God could use to lead this recalcitrant people into the land of Canaan. I'm not too sure, after being an intern under Moses for all those years, Joshua was all excited about leading Israel. Because he had seen how they could turn in a moment and become so cruel and crude. Yet, that was God's call upon him. But we go back and notice that after only two years of training under Moses, Joshua was prepared enough to make one of the greatest contributions in the spiritual history of Israel. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 14. I'd like to read the first ten verses. This is just after they had been, the spies had gone into the land, and ten of the spies had given a bad report. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Imagine walking through the camp and hearing the weeping and the wailing in the tents. You know, if you live in an apartment and it feels like you have paper-thin walls, just try living in tents. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Does that make any sense at all? And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and, go and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephun, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceeding good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, 
Then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said, just stone them with stones. And then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of Eden to all the sons of Israel. That is a spine-chilling sentence. Moses had chosen an elder of each of the tribes to go into the land to spy it out. You know the story because we studied that a while back. And the twelve reconnoitered the land. Hosea, or Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were two of the tribes, uh, two, two of the elders representing their particular tribes. In, in uh, Joshua's case, he represented Ephraim, and in uh, Caleb's case, he represented the tribe of Judah. And they went from Kadesh Barnea, down in the desert, up through the land of Canaan, all the way to Lebanon in the north. Now, when we were talking about it, I mentioned the fact that given the route they would have followed and all that they would have reconnoitered, that they probably walked about 600 miles. But you see, they had 40 days in which to do that. And in 40 days, you can cover 600 miles at only 15 miles per day, which isn't all that bad. Gave them time to reconnoiter and check out the places that they went around to pick a crop, some crops here and there and bring back some samples. But when they came back, you remember, 10 of them said, yes, the country is, is, is fertile and there's food and, and crops grow well and there's lots of room for animals, but there's giant walls and there are giant people and they have armies and they have tanks and missiles and F-16s. In effect, I mean, they were saying they had chariots and iron and they, they were warlike people. So we have no possibility of conquering this land. And of course, when the people heard these negative reports, they bemoaned their fate. And they grumbled against Moses. And the grumbling also carried over to Joshua and Caleb, who had stood up against the other ten and said, Oh, don't listen to these guys. They're a bunch of chickens. The truth is, it's a beautiful land, and God will give it to us if we believe it. Go forth, because their protection has been removed. It doesn't matter if they have all this war material in these strong walls. If God has removed their protection, they're dead. We will take But oh no, they grumbled against Moses. You took us out of the secure land of Egypt in which we dwelt. And you brought us out here to die in this hospital. Joshua and Caleb stood in the gap. Now think about it. The only person that was of the mind of Joshua and Caleb was Moses. Two and a half million people were against what they were saying. Now, I don't know about you, but three against two and a half million. Not good odds. And so you can see the tremendous courage God put into the hearts of Joshua and Caleb that they would stand up before their countrymen and say, Quiet, listen to us. Joshua and Caleb stood in the gap and pled with the people to trust God for the victory. Nowhere. In this passage, will you find them pleading Moses' cause? They plead God's cause. You see, Joshua and Caleb are men who have come to believe in God themselves. Yes, Moses is their great spiritual leader and spiritual father. But they're not saying, believe Moses. They're saying, believe God. And so Moses has two spokesmen who, apart from him, are standing up for God. 
And that reminded me of the fact that how many of us are just overjoyed when our children finally stand for the Lord on their own and not because they're our kids. Not because, well, mommy and daddy. We're believing in mommy and daddy's God. They're believing God for themselves. Walking God's way for themselves. Well, the people insisted on rejecting this wise advice of Joshua and Caleb. And as a result, the scripture says they were condemned to die in the wilderness. You want to die in the wilderness? Fine, you're going to just go ahead and die. You have spoken your own In Exodus 14, we read, God's response says, You shall not come into the land which I swore to settle. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, if that doesn't nail it down, you guys are not going. But Joshua and Caleb are going. Because, you see, they stood for the truth and they stood for God. And this was backed up by the fact that a few verses later, you discover here in uh, Numbers 14, that all of the ten spies who spoke ill of going in and stirred up the people against Moses died of a plague almost right away. The only two who survived the plague of the twelve were Joshua and Caleb. I mean, if, if that doesn't speak volumes, these people are blinder than bats. Imagine what it meant to Joshua and to Caleb. Confirmation of what they stood for. To see that 10 of the 12 died, and you and your brother Caleb, not literal brother, but your spiritual brother Caleb over here, are alive because you trusted in God. I mean, does that confirm trust in God or what? Well, we're not talking about, you know, well, I believe in God and things are going okay for me. You're not following God and you're having a little bit of a tough time. We're talking about dead. Finished. They're gone. That would, I think, make a profound impact. All of this is building the character of this man, Joshua, confirming his faith time after time. For the next 38 years, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness until all of those who were 20 and older at the time they refused to go in the land would drop dead in the wilderness. And little is said. It's interesting. You read through those passages and almost nothing is said of Joshua and Caleb during that 38 years. But we know that they were faithful to God and to Moses because just before the conquest, God said through Moses that they, Joshua and Caleb, have followed the Lord fully. Followed the Lord fully. Now, when we read a passage like that, we have to understand that doesn't mean they walked around with halos around their heads. Everywhere they had an angelic, you know, uh, saintly attitude, you know, like the Dalai Lama or something, you know. But it meant that their faith was in God, they trusted in God, and yeah, they had their problems along the way, and yes, they made mistakes along the way, and yes, they sinned at times, as we all do. But their heart was for God. And it says they followed the Lord fully. And after Gilead had been conquered, just east of the Jordan River, and Israel was poised to invade Canaan, Moses recounted the history of all of this. And he emphasized their failure at Kadesh Barnea. And in it all, he highlighted the significance of Joshua and Caleb. Let me read from the first chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 34. Deuteronomy 1:34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry, and he took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. 
And to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. The Lord was angry with me, now it's Moses himself talking, saying, on your account, saying, not even you shall enter there. But Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it, the land of Canaan. Powerful imprimatur of the Lord placed on Joshua, Caleb too. Caleb will be the one who later on in the conquest will say, Lord, give me this mountain. And God gave him the mountain. And it was probably the most difficult mountain to conquer in all of Judea, all of Canaan, not because it was a tall mountain, but because of who dwelled on that mountain. It was a mountain where giants lived, literally giants. And so Joshua and Caleb would go on in the strength of God to demonstrate what it meant to walk in faith or to receive the blessing of God in the process, even after the man Moses was gone. Well, next week we will see the transfer of power to Joshua.